0: Good morning. I invite you all to stand with me for the reading of the word today. We continue our sermon series in the book of Zechariah. This morning we'll be hearing from Zechariah chapter 3, the whole thing, it's short, and Zechariah 6, verse 9 through 15. But let us pray as we begin. Through your spirit, dear Lord, would you open our ears to hear? what you are saying to the church today and would you empower us to be transformed through the work of Christ into what we you have us to do in Jesus name we pray amen I am reading from the message translation as well uh, as a as a bit of NIV and I'm doing this really to help us understand and have some internal interpretation of the text. So let's begin with Zechariah 3. Next, the messenger angel showed me the high priest Joshua. He was standing before God's angel where the accuser showed up to accuse him. Then God said to the accuser, I, God, rebuke you, accuser. I rebuke you and choose Jerusalem. Everything is going up in flames, but I reach in and pull out Jerusalem like a burning stick. Joshua, standing before the angel, was dressed in filthy clothes. The angel spoke to his attendants, get him out of those filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, look, I've stripped you of your sin and will dress you in fine robes. I spoke up and said, how about a clean new turban for his head also? And they did it, put a clean new turban on his head. Then they finished dressing him with God's angel looking on. God's angel then charged Joshua. Orders from God of the angel armies. If you live the way I tell you and remain obedient in my service, then you'll make the decisions around here and oversee my affairs, and all my attendants standing here will be at your service. Careful, high priest Joshua. Both you and your friends sitting here with you, for your friends are in on this too. Here's what I'm going to do next. I'm introducing my servant branch, and note this, this stone that I'm placing before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, decree of God of the angel armies, I'll engrave with these words, I'll strip this land of its filthy sin all at once in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And then from chapter 6, then this message from God came to me. Take a collection from the exiles, Heldai, Tobiah, and Jedediah. They've just arrived from Babylon. You'll find them at the home of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Collect silver and gold from them and fashion crowns. Place one on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and give him this message. A message from God of the angel armies, be alert. We have a man here whose name is Branch. He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of God. Yes, he's the one. He will build the temple of God. Then he'll assume the role of royalty, take his place on the throne and rule. A priest sitting on the throne and a council of peace will be between the two of them. The other crown will be in the temple of God as a symbol of royalty under the custodial care of Heldai, Tobiah, Jedediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah. People will come from faraway places to pitch in and rebuild the temple of God. This will confirm that God of the angel armies did, in fact, send me to you. All this follows as you put your minds to a life of responsive obedience. To the voice of your God. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. So in 1932. The insurance company executive. I didn't know this about him. And also poet. Which I did know. Wallace Stevens. When he was 44 years old. Published his first book of poetry. Called Harmonium. That's the first edition there. In this book with several poems that have become famous and timeless. They'll show up in anthologies for college literature courses, including one poem called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. It has 13 stanzas, each show a different perspective of a blackbird, and the stanzas are pretty short. It's a good poem. And as I studied our text this week, I was really struck by how this text offers us different ways of looking at this high priest Joshua. And so I took Wallace Stevens' idea, but today you won't hear a poem, and thankfully it will not have 13 ways. There's only five ways, I think, of looking at high priest Joshua. And so that is what we're going to do today, five ways of looking at Joshua. We'll begin with the first one, the ideal. So let's look at a picture, the ideal picture, of what a high priest is supposed to be, the telos, the ultimate goal. The high priest's role is to represent God's people on the Day of Atonement, which is a a Jewish holiday also called Yom Kippur. On this day, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies where he burns incense and then sprinkles blood from the sacrifice for sin on the altar to atone for the sins of the people and his own sin. And this means, this atonement, means that the blood covers or pays for or cleanses people from their sin, so that they can be in right relationship with God. If you're curious about this, you can read more about it in Leviticus 16 and 17. The high priest is is known for wearing this special uniform. You can see some different representations here. On the Day of Atonement, he wears that plain white uniform. You can see it's made out of linen. But most other days, he wears the more fancy garment that includes that chest piece you see. And it has, if you look at a close-up, 12 different stones on it. Each stone is engraved with a different tribe's name because the high priest represents, he bears the names of those tribes, and he represents them before God. That golden piece at the bottom is a piece that goes on his turban, and I'll I'll talk more about that in a moment. The high priest has higher expectations regarding physical purity for himself than, than regular Israelites. For example, a high priest is not permitted to mourn the dead or even be close to a dead body. His purity is important, because the community standing with God is dependent on the high priest doing this important work before God on their behalf. That is the ideal. But in Zechariah's vision, we see another way of looking at Joshua the high priest. And this is the reality. The ideal is not the reality in Zechariah's vision. The reality is that the high priest is in filthy clothes. This is going to get a little gross. This doesn't mean that it has some dirt on it and you need a tide stick. It is not grass stains. It is not dirt. Etymologically, the word is related to impure bodily functions, excrement specifically, and reproductive fluids. This is impure. Not only impure before God, but no one in their right mind would ever stand before anyone like this. Much less God. This is a high priest's worst nightmare because if the high priest is unclean, so is everyone else. And because of his filth, Joshua is unable to represent anyone. The high priest cannot do his job because he is covered in what is representative of sin and shame. Maybe you've had dreams in which you're unable to do your job. I have. Uh, Last week when Pastor Lars was gone, I I was seeing a a graveside service one day and then a memorial service the next day. And a few days before, I dreamed that I couldn't get to the cemetery because the roads were flooded. And then when I finally got there, I had on the wrong outfit. It was really bad. And I'd lost my book of worship, and I couldn't remember any verses from the Bible. And in my dream, I was totally unprepared to be a pastor but Zechariah takes this level of unpreparedness to a whole new level. The priest's required holy uniform is the epitome of purity and holiness, but Joshua is the exact opposite. The high priest can't high priest, and everyone knows it. The, it's visible, it's probably smellable, but it gets worse because standing there beside God is the prosecutor, the accuser, sometimes depending on the translation of Bible you have, it is called the Satan, who is ready to point out every single molecule of filth on his garment, and he's right. He has a steel-tight case against Joshua, and what he's about to say is true. And the, the accuser raises his arm, ready to begin. When the accuser looks at high priest Joshua, what he sees is, is a priest who is sinful and unable to be in the presence of God, and he's right. That's the reality. But let's look at the third way of looking at Joshua, and this is the way that God looks at him. Because God sees Joshua and the people he represents differently than the accuser does. God, if you notice, the accuser doesn't talk <laughs> Right, God shuts the accuser down. Before the accuser can point out Joshua's filthy outfit, God interrupts him. He says, I rebuke you, accuser. I choose Jerusalem. I choose my people, not you. I reached in and I grabbed that burning stick from the fire and I rescued it. So the judge, God, begins saving Joshua and the people he represents, even before the prosecution, can make his opening statement. And if you notice, the accuser sort of exits the scene, and you never hear from him again. And then God continues his work, making Joshua into the person God wants him to be, so he can do the work God has called him to do. Joshua's filthy robe is removed. I I love this moment, too, in Uh, Zachariah pitches in, and is like, hey, what about his hat? Get him a clean hat. And they do. And and let me talk a bit about that piece that goes on the turban, the gold piece that you see at the bottom of the slide. That goes around the turban of the high priest, and it says Kodesh Yahweh, which means holy to the Lord. He gets a new hat that says holy to the Lord. Kodesh Yahweh is an important phrase in the book of Zechariah. It's a sort of Easter egg. It will come in later. But not only does God restore Joshua in Zechariah's vision, God takes it a step further in commanding Zechariah to put a crown on Joshua's head in, in chapter 6. And Zechariah does that. Now, in the scripture passages I was reading today, I read from two different sorts of prophetic types of literature. One was a vision. And then in chapter 6, I was reading an, an oracle. God speaking to Zechariah and telling him something to do, I call this instructions for prophetic enactment. And this is when God gives a prophet instructions to do something unusual, strange, or so even sometimes something gross, to symbolize a truth about who God is and what God does. And so this is a summary of what we heard in Zechariah chapter 6. Some newly arrived exiles from Babylon have showed up in Jerusalem, and they have a donation of silver and gold from the Jewish exiles who still live in Babylon, and at God's command, Zechariah collects these metals and he makes crowns. It's, it's easy to overlook the scene. Don't. This is a weird action for Zechariah to take the priest and then put a crown on him, because Priests and kings, to the ancient Jewish mind, they're not the same thing. The priest deals with sin. The king deals with the governance. And we keep these things separate. It could get messy. Even today, we don't suddenly make a pastor the president of the United States. These roles have different objectives. But here, high priest Joshua is, at least momentarily, wearing this crown. And this is a symbol of the future renewal of God's people. It's almost like Joshua is play-acting a future priest-slash-king, the one we heard mentioned earlier, this person called Branch. Though though this is a surprising symbol, the priest-king, it's not entirely new in Scripture. And for Joshua, it is not a permanent identity. He doesn't become the king. It's a sort of temporary foreshadowing. It's a, a little bit like letting a child try on mom or dad's dress shoes, right? They wear them around the house. It reminds us of the future, but it is not their uniform from here on. But with the renewal of of Joshua comes responsibility. Joshua is given commands to obey. Joshua 3, 7, he's given a reminder that if he walks in obedience, if he keeps God's commandments, then he will be given the governance overseeing the temple. Cause and effect. God works first. He renews. God takes away our sin, but it is not without consequence. It is a privilege to have your sin taken away. And with great privilege comes great responsibility. And and then again, in chapter 6, with this prophetic enactment, we read, those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Again, a conditional promise all this good stuff will only happen if he, and we, the people, if we obey, if. It, it seems like in the midst of all these hopeful, wonderful visions and prophetic enactments toward renewal, there's a little problem. The responsibility rests on the people and their leaders if they are obedient. I kind of wish that Zechariah would have followed up and he would have been like, uh, God, <laughs> how often? <laughs> to what extent? Big obedience, or even the teeniest part. Like, how obedient, God? Where's the line? Could you spell it out for me a little bit more clearly? Because Joshua has been renewed, but there is still a challenge. So let's look at the fourth way of looking at Joshua. The high priest Joshua points to Jesus. Because another way to look at Joshua is as a symbol of what is to come. A symbol of Christ. We read in 3, verse 8 through 9, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men, symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, and then I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And then again in in chapter 6, tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne. From this, we learn that there will be another servant called Branch and this is what he is and does. Branch, and this goes from Your left to right. So Branch is an obedient servant. Through him, God will remove the sin of the land on a single day, not one day a year like the Day of Atonement. This person will build the temple of the Lord. He is a king. He's clothed in majesty. He rules from a throne, and he's also a priest. And then, because of the work of Branch, who is a king with—a king has a kingdom— There will be peace and flourishing. In 3, verse 10, that's the last verse of chapter 3. In that day, declares the Lord of angel armies, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So the garden will flourish once again, and you'll sit under a fig tree and eat fresh figs with your friends. That's what it's saying in chapter 3, verse 10. We live in the Midwest, but have you ever had a fresh-picked fig, right, like warm off the tree? It's delicious. If you think you don't like figs because you don't like Fig Newtons or dried figs, you haven't really had one. <laughs> They're kind of warm and melty and soft. A, a fig tree, a good one, is really prolific. There's lots of fruit, not enough to go around. It's wonderful. And that's what this king and priest bring. And Jesus Fulfills all these things. Jesus is the fully obedient servant. He is completely pure and holy. But he took on the mess. That robe. That garment. Of high priest Joshua. He took the mess and sin and shame of the world on himself. He took that filthy robe from Joshua. And as Jesus was crucified. That robe of sin was crucified too. Jesus removed the sin in a single day. And then, just like the enacted prophecy, Jesus sat down and was crowned king. That's what we celebrate on Ascension Day. But he's also a priest, we read throughout scripture, representing us continually before God the Father. So the fourth way of looking at the high priest Joshua is as a precursor to the coming priest and king Jesus. And I want to point out, Do you notice they have the same name? Joshua means God saves. And Jesus is the Greek form for Joshua. Joshua is Joshua. But there's one more way of looking at Joshua the high priest. We can look at Joshua and see Jesus, but we can also look at at Joshua and see ourselves. So let's go back to that image of Joshua in his filthy clothes. That's sin. This is the reality for humanity, sin. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And sin has been compared to many things. A virus, pollution, corruption like rust. People make up ways of being evil. Sometimes it's on purpose and and other times it's, it's caught, it's passed down, it's passed on. There's the old Dr. Seuss book. Maybe you know this, great literature. The cat in the hat comes back in which this cat visits some children. You shouldn't let a strange cat into your house. And the cat takes a bath while eating some pink cake and he leaves this pink ring around the tub and then the children are concerned that their mother will be upset, and so he cleans it up by using the mother's white dress. And then the dress has the stain on it. And and then he uses the wipes the dress on the wall to get the stain out of the dress, and then the stain gets on the wall. And then he uses a rug to wipe the stain off the wall, and then eventually everything that the stain has touched becomes pink, and it's a giant pink spot covering everything. I don't really like this book. I am a pretty fastidiously clean person, and I think as a child it provoked a lot of anxious feelings in me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but God's holiness and sin cannot exist. But the fact is, is that sin, sort of like that pink spot, permeates everything. It, it just goes on and on and on. Like, Zachariah's vision of high priest Joshua as, as his dirty robe represented not just himself but everyone. We can look at Joshua and see ourselves. We're all Joshua, all of us, even in our best clothes, on our best behaved days, with our best intentions and best laid plans, with our best successes and, and our best grades. None of us are pure enough to reach out and touch God on our own. We all have that spot on us. It's like all of us are covered in whatever Joshua was covered in. None of us are holy enough, but God, God renews and redeems us. God shuts down the accuser and sends him away. God is the one who, by through Christ, removes our filthy clothes. God is the one who who gives us a new robe, a new turban that says, Kodesh Yahweh, holy to the Lord, royal clothes. And in this holy uniform, we too, like Joshua, are priests and rulers in a sort of miniature way. As image bearers of God, we have been renewed by Christ to live as royal priests. At home, at work, we're royal priests of God. But you are a chosen people, Jesus' friend Peter wrote. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like a priest, we represent God to people and in prayer, people to God. We care for God's temple, the church, the whole earth. Both, both are the temple of God. And each of us who know Christ and are in Christ are considered a priest made holy by God through Christ, just like Joshua. And then also, just like Joshua was crowned king, so too are each of us called to rule and reign with God. God created human beings to be vice regents with him. To have benevolent dominion over the created world. We as human beings have regal responsibility. We are not worms. When my daughter was young, I overthought things as usual. And I was really cautious about using any princess language or allowing her to wear any shirts that said princess on it. I, I like democracy. And I think that calling one's daughter princess can help kind of promote a sense of entitlement and rather than a Judeo-Christian work ethic. So we did not play princess in the Lawrence house. We played peasant, which as I think about it now, <laughs> probably, it probably has just as many problems. Um, and so if I were to go back to my 34-year-old self, I'd probably say just play God-image bearers and rule over the stuffed animals. Because... God wants us all to participate in kingdom purposes. And there's a sense that we are royalty as sons and daughters of God. And in in Jesus' work, he renews our identities just like he did Joshua's as priests and rulers. There's a song, a worship song in the Bible in Revelation 5 that says, you, Jesus, were slaughtered and by your blood, You ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. My friends, in Joshua, we see Jesus inviting us to a new identity as priests and rulers or even little kings representing and ruling and reigning obediently. So this is the vision and the prophetic enactment we see today. Through Joshua's story, we see the other Joshua story, Jesus' story, and the story God has called us into and how they merge together. Our worth as human beings is not in who we make ourselves to be, but who, through Christ, God makes us to be. God calls us out of our shameful garments into royal robes, God empowers us by the spirit to represent him as priests and vice regents, and we are saved to reign and rule just like Joshua. And think of where we've come in this vision. We've seen Joshua as he really is, and then where God sees him. And and we have started out in this courtroom with the accuser and the filthy clothes, and now we're sitting in some idyllic meadow under a fig tree, Chowing down with friends, crowned priests and kings to reign with Jesus, the great high priest and the king of kings. And this is the work of God. This is our primary identity. And if this is what you focus on, my friends, this can change your life every single day. To think, how, Jesus, do I serve alongside you as your priest and your vice regent, your ruler? How can your identity focus on, I'm a priest, I am cleansed by Christ's work, how can I serve God today? Last week, I I mentioned how good theology can only be followed by doxology, which I give credit to my covenant orientation theology class for teaching me. So, as we did last week, I invite you to stand, and we are going to read responsively a psalm of praise to God, who does all these things. This is Psalm 145, and I invite you to read the bold print. I will exalt you, my God, the King. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They tell of the power of your awesome works. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures through all generations. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us continue in praise, singing crown him with many crowns.